listening to Law and Gospel on this June the 9th in the year of our Lord, 2023. I'm Pastor Tom Baker, and you're listening to Law and Gospel, where we normally take a look at emails on Friday, but I want to make a little announcement ahead of time. Uh, Yesterday, I received a quarterly edition from Concordia Historical Institute. And I want to talk about that a little bit. It's a very, very important edition. It's actually number 96, volume 96, number two for summer 2023. It's 68 pages long. And what does it talk about? It talks about what I consider to be one of the most important conventions of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod that occurred in New Orleans in 1973. Why is that such an important convention? That is where the Seminex faculty of Concordia Seminary was considered to be teaching doctrine contrary to the word of God, led to the walkout, the creation of Seminex, which died just a few years later after that, but it was a loss of all but five professors at the seminary who walked out from the seminary. A lot of people do not understand what happened at that time. The Concordia Historical Institute, it is a magazine, which is also the official department of archives and history of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. In fact, Daniel D. N. Harmelink, managing editor, has been on the air a number of times talking about it. The editor-in-chief is John C. Woolrobby, who also was a member of my congregation for a while. And there are articles in here. The Concordia Historical Institute is charged with preserving and promoting Lutheran history, especially that surrounded the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. This is done through actively collecting, organizing, cataloging, and preserving relevant documents, photographs, books, artifacts, and fine art, and then making these historical items available to inform and inspire the church and community. Now, CHI, Concordia Historical Institute, has been published since July 1928, it's quarterly, making it the longest running journal of Lutheran history in North America. Now, in this particular issue, volume 96, number two, John C. Woolrobby talks about the necessity for people to understand what happened at the New Orleans Convention. So many people still don't realize the intrusion of the Concordia Seminary faculty 
into teaching that was contrary to the word of God. Then the next article is by Ken Sherb. Uh, Ken Sherb is well known to me also because at this time he is currently administrative assistant to the president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, Central Illinois District for missions, evangelism, stewardship, and human care. And that's where for the congregations I'm now serving, they are there. And, well, Pastor Sherb has attended my worship services at Emmanuel in Macomb and has been working with the congregation in trying to get a full-time pastor, which we are praying for at this time. And he writes an article, We Are Taking a Stand, which was the theme of the 1973 Missouri Senate Convention in New Orleans. Then we have Raymond Hartwig, a good friend of mine and former secretary of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, who goes through the doctrinal resolutions and statements of the New Orleans Convention. This is a great book for you to have because it gives you a lot of information. Then Michael M. Strong, he has an article, Remembering the Battle of New Orleans. And then finally, there's an article, and guess what it's called? Watershed at the Rivergate by Tom Baker. Now, I know him pretty well because that's me. I wrote a book in 1973, a pamphlet, about the teachings that were going on in the seminary during my time there. And that book is uh, available. If you'd like to have a copy, we can give you information. Just email us at tombaker at brick.net, uh, either for a copy of Watershed at the Rivergate or for a copy of the Concordia Historical Institute Quarterly that has all these arg uh, arguments in it and all this wonderful information in it. Yeah, Watershed at the Rivergate, I, I called it that because the New Orleans Convention, I had written this book before that, was going to be a real watershed as to whether or not we would be holding to the doctrine of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. It also was at the Rivergate, and the Rivergate was the location of the convention center in New Orleans in 1973. So it talks a lot about how I wrote the book, where I got my information from, and particularly those who helped me write the book, specifically Dr. James Veltz, who I consider to be one of the great professors at the seminary. And he has written a commentary on Mark. It's two volumes long, and I would encourage pastors to get copies of it because you can hardly go through a page of his commentary without finding 
two or three new sermons that you hadn't thought about. It's just an excellent book. So this is a great pamphlet, the quarterly edition of Concordia Historical Institute, volume 96, number two, and talks about the Missouri Synod 1973 convention in New Orleans. And we would encourage you to definitely take a look at it. Okay, let's go to an email that we received. Uh, this is one I find very interesting. It's by Marion de Blasio. He's an op-ed contributor and has a radio program. And he begins with this title, No Evidence for God's Existence, Says Who? And here's his question. Can there be a rational conversation between a Christian and one who says that there is no evidence for God's existence. Now, I don't believe that there can be a rational conversation between them, but he does believe that there can. And he tries to show that. Nowadays, this claim implies that unless God himself can be observed empirically, there is no evidence. But then he admits, everyone knows that such a criterion cannot be satisfied. Now, what do they mean by empirically? Well, they're talking about the actual scientific method, where, let's say we're talking about the temperature of water when it boils. Well, empirically, you can do a study on it and it will normally boil at 100 degrees Fahrenheit, right? Well, no. If you're on a mountain way above the sea level, then the temperature is different as to when it would boil. In fact, if you have cookbooks, they'll explain the difference in temperatures depending on what sea level you are at. Now, we know what those temperatures are because we can do experiments in a laboratory and find that out. That's empirical. You can see it. You know it. But can there be such empirical evidence about defining God? He says, Christianity defines God as an immaterial being who can be experienced and reason can justify Christian faith. Now, I agree with the first part, that God is an imperial immaterial being. We, we can't see him. Remember, God the Father is the Spirit. Now, he did become material in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But the second idea that reason can justify Christian faith, 
Well, when I read that, I didn't know what he meant. He says this, The crux of the discussion then is whether a claim of no evidence is rationally warranted. I am convinced that theism, and particularly Christian faith, are rational beliefs. In contrast, the claim that there is no evidence for God's existence confounds reason and is held arbitrarily. Now, so far, he's given no reason why rational belief can convince a person that God exists. He says, let's take a page out of a playbook that supports no evidence for God. Reminded, a supposed cool factor is an assertive title. Do not substantiate a contrarian claim. Unless, of course, popular culture is allowed to determine one's thinking. He quotes Sam Harris in The End of Faith, what he has written. And Sam Harris encourages an open-minded exploration of religious experience. He writes, There is no doubt that experiences of this sort are worth seeking. A truly rational approach to this dimension of our lives would allow us to explore the heights of our subjectivity with an open mind while shedding the provincialism and dogmatism of any religious traditions in favor of free and rigorous inquiry. It is important, he writes, to realize that a healthy scientific skepticism is compatible with a fundamental openness of mind. Now, I I don't know if you understood what that means, but I sure don't. The healthy scientific skepticism has resulted in a number of scientists believing in evolution, which is not compatible with the openness of a mind when one is looking at Holy Scripture. It creates doubt about what Scripture is saying. He continues to say, this framework directs one's thinking toward a predetermined course. Anything that suggests the existence of God isn't part of free and rigorous inquiry. Scientific skepticism is implied exclusively to theistic claims. By definition, he says, a fundamental openness of mind should not preclude the possibility of a creator and whether scriptural claims can be true. Now, he's going to give an example of what he's talking about. But as we go through this example, I think it proves my point, not his point. 
He says, let's take a lesson on open-mindedness from the remarkable story of William J. Murray. Now, he was the child of Madeline Murray O'Hare, who managed through the courts to eliminate the Bible and prayer in American schools. She became the founder of American Atheists and had raised William to deny God and discouraged him from thinking about the Bible. As an adult, he exercised open-mindedness and read the primary literature about the Christian faith. In fact, he wrote a book about his conversion to Christianity in My Life Without God. He said, I read the book of the Bible written by the great physician Luke. There I found my answer, not the book itself, but Jesus Christ. God was no longer a distant force. I now knew him in a personal way. Within days, my life and attitudes began to change. Now I look back at the devastation. My family, particularly my mother and myself, had left a path of ruin behind us. Ruined ideals, ruined lives. Now, according to Marion de Blasio, he is saying that this experience by William J. Murray was his using his open mind and human reason. But that's just the very opposite. He said, he read these things by the great physician Luke in the Gospel of Luke and also according to the book of Acts. Yet many of the things that Luke wrote about have no evidence at all about them except what Luke says. And so therefore, how can this be thought of as something that is rational, using pure reason. He says, shouldn't a fundamental openness of mind allow this dramatic and radical experience of Christian faith as a possible testimony for the truth of the gospel? What does he mean? No, the Bible is the truth of the gospel. There are many people who read the book of Luke and remain atheists. There's no evidence in the book of Luke to help them prove that God exists. No, there are many people who are against the Bible and say that's what in the Bible was made up by the apostles to make a point. He said, shouldn't a free and rigorous inquiry 
include the possibility that Murray's experience correlates to the claim that therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is in a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Well, that once more makes the point I want to make, that it's being in Christ that changed his attitude. It wasn't the logic or the reason of the book of Luke, because there are many things in it that simply doesn't make sense to human reason and human logic. And yet, that's what the Bible is all about. The Bible is really a great mystery because we come to believe things that are really quite ridiculous. In other words, you can have a free and rigorous inquiry of mathematics, chemistry, physics, and that would suggest that the human mind is the intended object for comprehension. No, from the Bible's point of view, it's not the human mind, but the new Adam. Remember what David says? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Did you hear that word? Create. That means God creates a new way of thinking about reality and about God. I don't have to have any evidence that God exists because I have God's word. And when God's word says it, that settles it. How did I come to that conclusion? I was raised in a Christian family that devoted much time to the reading of the Bible and the Bible stories and talking about it at home in Sunday school, vacation Bible school, and listening to it in church. Yesterday we talked about how many pew people prefer the couch to the pew. And my point was, no, you can sit on a couch and watch a worship service on your computer or television, but you cannot receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So, this particular writer thinks that if God gives you faith in himself, how can you not count that as evidence? Well, it's evidence because the Bible says it. It's not evidence because our reason agrees with it. Much of what the Bible says is contrary to human reason. For example, I'm a pastor. I'm preaching at four congregations. And I look out over these congregations and the members. And you know that after a while, a pastor gets to know these members. Would my conclusion be 
that these are faith-based people who never sin and are so good in obeying the commandments of God. No, the opposite seems to be the evidence because they themselves confess it, that they are poor, miserable sinners, sinning by thought, word, and deed all the time and deserving nothing but temporal and eternal punishment. That's the evidence when you take a look at it from a human point of view. But from God's point of view, these same people who now trust in Jesus Christ are regarded by God as being justified, which means they are saved and their sins have been forgiven. Where is the evidence that our sins have been forgiven? There is none except the cross of Christ, where he died for your sins. Remember at the cross, hardly anybody recognized that he was dying for the sins of the world. The soldiers sure didn't. The apostles who hardly were there, except for John, didn't. The women were preparing to anoint a dead body three days later. They didn't realize it. So being at the cross was no evidence for what the Old Testament said, that he would be pierced for our sins. And yet that's what was happening. We came to know this by hearing the Bible and being convinced by the Holy Spirit who created faith in us. So faith actually is contrary to human reason. Faith says, no, the things that happened, they are not possible, except when we read the Bible, they are possible. In other words, there is no doubt that the conclusion of no evidence is possible. The proof I would use of that, if Madeline O'Hare's son came to faith by reading the book of Luke, and it was so reasonable, logical, according to human reason, why did it not convert her? No, she remained an atheist. So that was not sufficient evidence for her. And that's because when her son was reading the scripture, the Holy Spirit worked within him and created a strong faith in the words of the scripture. That's the point of every sermon, to talk about Jesus, who changes your attitude, your thinking, and what you now realize is the evidence for what you believe, God's Word. More on this on Monday's session. God 
bless you. Listen to Law & Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law & Gospel, please make your check out to Law & Gospel and mail to Law & Gospel P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132, or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.